Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. Well, as I said last week, and as I said in my message to you by video uh, this week, that marriage is obviously in a free fall in our culture. Um, Everything seems to be on the table. Uh, Living together outside of marriage, divorce, uh, homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage, uh, polygamy is back on the table in our in our culture, and it's confusing. And um, and and really, we receive we have a lot of heartfelt questions about these issues and all the ones surrounding them. And we we receive a lot of heartfelt, genuine questions, big questions, some of them million dollar questions that deserve very thoughtful uh, answers. I mean, I hear some of the ones I've had. Uh, to me personally. Pastor Keith, why do I need a wedding ceremony and a piece of paper to make me love somebody? I don't think I need that. Why do I need that? Pastor Keith, uh, I just don't love my husband any longer. I am terribly unhappy, and I don't think God wants me to be unhappy. Do you? Pastor Keith, I'm a lesbian, and I want to be in a legal, committed, loving, monogamous relationship with my partner. How can that possibly uh, be wrong? How could it possibly be right uh, to keep us from that? Uh, Pastor Keith, who in their right mind would marry someone without living with them first to see how it goes? I mean, you don't buy a car without giving it a test drive, do you? Pastor Keith, what is the meaning of marriage? How do we know, how do we really know what makes a marriage anyway? I mean, who's to say? Who gets to say? Now, there's the question, isn't it? Who says? Well, it all depends on uh, who you ask. Who says? Uh, Where do we go for answers? Now, we have a hard time as a people in North America discussing these questions, don't we? We do. We, we, we would rather shout at each other from a distance and label each other. I came across um, an essay by my friend, Dr. George Guthrie, who's professor of New Testament at Union Theological, Sem- I mean, Union um, University in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, he wrote about this problem of us uh, speaking to each other in ways that are helpful. Here's what he wrote. There exists a fundamentalism on the left as well as the more broadly published fundamentalism on the right. Both fundamentalisms communicate, you must agree with my position and my applications or I will vilify you. These strident cousins askew dialogue as compromise and often take an approach that shouts, if I can label you, I have dealt with you. And if I can label the information that you present, uh, this is just garbage or this is homophobic, I have dealt with your research and ideas. Let me encourage us, wherever we stand on on these um, biblical, theological moral, ethical, cultural issues that we're going to deal with today and in the next two Sundays, uh, that we not go here 
and say, if I can just label you, I've dealt with you. And if I can just label the information that you present, then I've dealt with your research or your, your thinking. It's just not helpful. So with that in mind, let me, let me address everyone here. You know, our church exists largely uh, for people who have given up on church, given up on God, uh, maybe been far away from God for a while but want to come back, maybe are, are here uh, examining the claims of Christ for the last time. And uh, usually, at least from what you tell us uh, in our surveys of our congregation each year, about 4 to 5% of the people who attend our services are not, yet, are not believers. You're here checking things out. Let me say welcome. That's why we exist uh, in part. Others of you are followers of Christ and you're, you're wanting some clarity on these issues. It, it would be important for you to understand. Let me take the first part of my talk and, and explain the two assumptions that are foundational to or behind everything I'm going to say this morning and the following two Sundays. You know, anytime you hear a talk, anytime you hear a presentation, anytime you hear a lecture, anytime you read a book, uh, there are assumptions that are behind the information. They're behind the information and, and they, they, they direct where the information goes. It would be good for you to know the perspective from which I'm going to be speaking based on two assumptions. Here is the first assumption. Jot, you might want to jot this down. Biblical authority. We value here the authority of the Bible. It is our first core value. We believe the Bible is the final authority on matters of belief and behavior. The final say-so, the final spiritual authority for what we are to believe and how we are to behave. Uh, the theologians would say it is the authority for our faith and practice. Um, we believe it is God's revealed, inerrant, infallible uh, word of God. We believe it to be true without any mixture of error. Now, we also understand that the Bible does not speak to all issues. You understand that, don't you? The Bible does not address all issues. Uh, you won't find any instruction on how to do better in your geometry class. Uh, you won't find any axioms of geometry here, or uh, you won't find a musical score necessarily. You find some hymns and some lyrics, but you won't find anything about music theory here too much. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak to every issue. But where, when it does speak, we believe it and I believe it and the assumption is that the Bible is correct, that God is correct, that it is authoritative, that he, he corrects our human reasoning, he corrects our human experience, he corrects our human tradition. The Bible, we believe, trumps all of those sources of spiritual uh, truth. And um, someone once said it this way, the Bible is all true, but not all truth is in the Bible. Uh, but where it does speak, we believe it to be authoritative. And it speaks on these issues we're going to deal with uh, today and the following two Sundays. So I'm asking you, well, first of all, I, let me say this. I don't, have all, I don't have time to go into all the reasons that we believe the Bible to be God's word to us all the reasons we believe it to be authoritative. I think I've preached on that quite enough over the years. You can go in our archives and find those sermons. I'll recommend three books to you if you want to read three good books on the matter. And I think you should, even those of you who already hold to the authority of Scripture. You should know why. 
Uh, I recommend starting with uh, a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell. Uh, two that will be a little more challenging, but man, 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 oh man, are they good. Uh, the first one would be, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? by a British theologian who's already in heaven named F.F. F. Bruce. The initials F.F. F. Bruce. And a third book, Are the Old Testament Documents Reliable? by Dr. Walter Kaiser, world-class, universe-class, Old Testament scholar. But you want to do some more reading there. We don't have time to get into those reasons now. But I just want you to know the assumption. That is the assumption uh, upon which I am standing and present this this information. Now, so I'm asking you to be patient and listen to the position and the definition and the meaning of marriage as understood from the scriptures. Uh, now, you might, you might not believe in God. You certainly might not believe that Jesus is God, which we do, which I do. Uh, you, um, you might not agree with this position at all. I understand this. Uh, but even if you don't believe or agree, my hope is that you'll listen and that, and that I, you pray for me, that I can be clear and clearly articulate the position so that you understand it. Uh, very, very clearly. Therefore, we go to the Bible to see what God says about marriage, what it is, what it means, what it does, why it's important, and as well as what it is not. Second assumption. You ready for this one? Second assumption is this. God has your best interests at heart. God is pro you. God is for you. God has your best interest at heart. He wants the best for you. Uh, there's, uh, we, we not only assume the authority of the Bible as God's word, but we also are assuming that what God says about himself in the Bible is accurate. And uh, he says in the Bible that he is altogether wise, he is all-knowing, and he is altogether Good. He's all-knowing, all-wise. The theologians would use the word omniscient. He is omniscient. That means he knows everything. Another way to put it would be this, that God is really, really smart. Have you ever thought about God that way? Have you ever thought about that, that the God of the Bible is the most intelligent being in existence? And so I'd go to him for that. He's very, very smart. He has total knowledge. He is also altogether wise which means he knows the best way to use the knowledge for good. The Bible also says about him that he is altogether good. Uh, I love the passage that describes God as being light, and in him is no darkness at all. He is altogether good. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. That little saying is fun to say, and it's true. He is good. Therefore, he knows what is best for you. And he wants the best for you. He knows what is best for me, and he wants the best for me. But, not, you know, we're so individual, we think it's just all about us. It's not. You know, God says, I also know what's best for society. I know what's best for humanity. I know what's best for your community and this world. And so uh, we are assuming in this talk that God is altogether good, all-wise, all-knowing. He knows everything. Every uh, thing. So this means that God, um, when He speaks to marriage, He's got our He's got our best interests 
as people and as a culture in mind. Now, the Bible speaks early and often of marriage and its meaning, but nowhere as eloquently as Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. So if you've got your uh, Bibles, your hard copy, or your digital copy on your smartphone or your iPad, turn to the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 uh, through 25. And I'm going to read this passage. You follow along. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Translation. This is God's Word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. That word helper could also be translated an equal other. Make an equal other, another one like him, as his complement. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird. It's funny to me that he, he jumps then to something else. But there's a reason. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought to the man to see what he would call it. And what it, that was, you know, he gave Adam that job. He named, named the animals. It's part of the, our job description as human beings to subdue the earth or to manage the earth for God, to take good care of creation for God. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. I mean, one goes by and Adam says, looks like a giraffe to me. So, so be it. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every animal. But for the man, no helper was found or no equal other was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This magnificent poetic language. But it, not, let's not just hydroplane over this picture. Adam, he, he had he seen all, God had all the animals pass by him. All the animals pass by him. And he noticed there's two. They, they complement each other. There's equal others. But I'm the only one. And he got lonely. And then God took care of this. And he says, at last. Woo. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. No kidding. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Now, here's, here's one way to express God's definition of marriage. Marriage is the intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one physically and in entirety of life. So I'm going to I'm going to begin one sermon that's going to take 3 weeks to talk about the meaning, the purpose, the essence, the nature, the mission of uh of marriage, and so we're going to get to about three or four uh, understandings that we need to to have um, this morning, and we're going to start with the first one. Here's the first thing we learn about God's view of marriage: God created it. God created it. 
Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. God did this after all of God's creation was done. And he had said each aspect of creation was good. Even before sin entered uh, the world, he saw one thing that he said was not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And he, he said, I will do something about that. I will. And he created the beautiful relationship of marriage. Husband and and wife and said it is very very good he determined to make an equal other a helper uh, to complement adam and so um, so because now here are the implications for that because god created marriage he is the one who defines it now in, in the biblical the historic biblical um uh, interpretation of the scriptures on this issue, the first thing we un- understand is, is God created it, therefore He defines it. And He's the only one who has the right to define marriage. Uh, it's what we believe. Uh, it's meaning, it's essence, it's purpose. Uh, not popular opinion, uh, not the courts of the land, not you, not me, Marriage is not some social accommodation that developed over the centuries as a preference for human beings. We humans did not create the idea of marriage. God did, at least according to the Scriptures. God created marriage. He's the one who gets to define it. Um, Christian ethics is not a popularity contest. Christian ethics are not decided by popular vote or democratic process. God decides it from the Scriptures, whether we like it or not, and He defines marriage. Second thing I want you to understand from the Scriptures here, not only did God create marriage, but God created marriage heterosexual. So here we go. Let's just jump right in. Let's just jump right in. This here, uh, God, I was thinking, I'll wait till the third week to get to this. And then I started with the very first passage in the Bible that deals with marriage. And he, he, he boom, you're, we're right there. Second chapter of the whole cotton-picking Bible, and we're on this issue. The most intensive and divisive moral debate of our day. Twenty years ago, it was abortion. Abortion's been left in the dust. It's the nature of marriage. Is it heterosexual? Is it homosexual? Is it both? Is it, one, is it only one? What is it? There's our debate, isn't it? That's where we are as a, as, as a culture. But God's view, again, remember I'm just presenting the one view here. God's view is God created marriage and he created it heterosexual. Look at verse, well, turn left one chapter to the first chapter of Genesis to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, both in the image of God, um, both reflecting the image of God. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Now, the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. God defines marriage as between a man and a woman, male and female. 
And so we, again, so we face this debate right at the start of this sermon, right at the start of this series, right at the start of scriptures, that God created marriage to be heterosexual, not homosexual. Now, some of you may be feeling and thinking something like this right now, but now, Pastor, are you sure that the Bible teaches this? Because, you know, I've read and I look at it and I believe the Bible teaches something else. It seems to me that, it seems to me that God probably does condemn abusive, oppressive, promiscuous, homosexual behavior, but it doesn't anywhere condemn committed, covenantal, legal, monogamous, homosexual marriage. Therefore, it must be okay. It doesn't mention it. Therefore, it must be okay. So I think, Pastor, that you're misinterpreting the Scriptures. Well, that's one of the accusations, in fact, uh, even in popular culture. Macklemore and Ryan Lewis uh, accuse us of this in their song, Same Love, with the lyric of, hey, you're just paraphrasing a 3,500-year-old book. Well, are we? I think that's a legitimate challenge. Because is it possible to misinterpret the Scriptures? Yeah, of course, it, one of my greatest fears each week when I open the Bible is I'm going to either be irresponsible or, or unintentionally miss it because the Bible is somewhat of a closed book and there are ways to get at the right meaning. Remember, I've always said the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. Getting to what it means clearly is somewhat difficult. So is it possible that we're paraphrasing, that we're misinterpreting a 3,500-year-old book? It's least possible, but are we? Well, I'm, I don't think we are. There, there, there are at least two problems with this belief that says, well, the Bible doesn't mention or condemn monogamous, legal, homosexual marriage, therefore it must be okay. Here's a big problem right out of the bat in, in dealing with what the Bible teaches about moral and ethical issues. That is an argument from silence. That's always weak as water. Now, I hear it all the time in our Christian ethics. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't condemn this. And so, I mean, we do it in another area of marriage. We think it's just no big deal. You can divorce and remarry, divorce and remarry, divorce and remarry. The Bible's pretty clear. There's a couple of ways that God says because of the hardness of your hearts and your sin, I may allow divorce. I never command it in a couple of areas. And we just assume if we can get divorced, then we can remarry. But that's an argument from silence. He never says we can remarry. So, Pastor, what are you saying? Did I mess up? I'm just saying, be careful. Don't, it's, not, it's not clear. You can't just, in a cavalier fashion, assume that it's okay to remarry if our, if our marriages dissolve. I mean, it's very clear if someone violates the marriage covenant, they are, in God's eyes, never to remarry. For them to remarry is adultery. Jesus said that. It's very clear. He's silent on the, quote, innocent partner. So the innocent tends to say, hey, I'm good. I'm going to find somebody that loves me. And we're sentimental. We want them to be happy. But it is an argument from silence. It is not clear. This is an argument from silence. The Bible doesn't condemn it, therefore it must be okay. I, I, I would be very shaky about hanging my biblical, theological, ethical life on that kind of shaky hook. I just wouldn't do it. Now, here's another problem with that, uh, that, um, that argument. There, there are three positions on this issue. Not only three. There are more. 
but there are three that are prominent. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting the first position. What I would describe as the historic, orthodox, um, biblical position on, on, on marriage. It is the overwhelmingly consistent interpretation of what the Bible says is God's view of marriage. I've studied all the passages that relate to marriage and the issue of homosexuality, and it appears to me that the Bible's pretty clear on the issue. Uh, it, it doesn't leave us in doubt there. There's a second position on these issues that says this. Well, of course that's what the Bible teaches. We just reject it. We just reject that. It's, it is 3,500 years old. It's antiquated. It's not relevant for our culture today. We're in a new day. We've got to be on the right side of history. Um, and we, we think we need to create a new cultural order. And so, oh, well, of course the Bible teaches that. We're not even debating that. We just reject that. We want a new cultural order. Now, I think that's an intellectually uh, uh, a valid position. It's intellectually honest. How's that? It says, no, yeah, that's what, of course that's what it teaches. I reject it. There's a third position that seeks to reframe the teaching of the Scriptures to allow the Bible, to let the Bible allow same-sex marriage as well as homosexual behavior. I don't think, and I don't think that position has a, has a leg to stand on. And so this, this well, I don't think that's the, what the Bible teaches. I'm... I don't think that holds water. I think the Bible is very clear. And let's just, so in our, as we go forward, let's not do, let's not do um, let's not do the silly thing of trying to reframe the Bible. Let's get real clear on it, and then let's either accept it or reject it. But let's not do this middle thing. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful. Let's be honest about what God says about sexual ethics in the Bible. So, we may not like it. God created marriage. He created it to be between a man and woman. Uh, we, we can like this or we can dislike it. We can embrace it or we can reject it. But we cannot debate that that's what the Bible says. I don't think we got a legitimate debate there. So, pastor, then why in the world would God do such a narrow thing? Why would he limit marriage in, in such a narrow way? Here's why. Because he is all-knowing and altogether wise and altogether good, and he has your best interest at heart and my best interest at heart. He wants our good. So it doesn't feel good to me. I know, but he knows better than we do. He knows better than I do. He knows better than our culture does. God created marriage. He created it. Heterosexual. Here's a third one. Ready for this one? He created it sexual. Can I get an amen? Yes. How about that? Yes. Um, he created it sexual. Now, we cannot talk about God's view of marriage from the Scriptures without talking about God's view of sex. 
we're right there again in the second chapter of Genesis. Look at verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Some translations say this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Here in this verse, this, this cleaving, this bonding, this one flesh, it certainly involves m- much more than the physical, much more than sex, but it certainly doesn't mean less than sex. It, it begins there. The physical act of marriage is a celebration of sexual union. And it was God's idea, and God created it. God created them male and female to complement each other in more ways than physically, uh, but he certainly created them to complement each other physically. It's God's plan. God created marriage, and God created sex to be celebrated in marriage only. It is to be joyful. It is to be pleasurable. It is to be great fun. If you don't believe me, then just this afternoon, do some Bible reading. Go to the Song of Solomon. Read the whole thing. See all the guys poking their wife. Yeah, go read that. Come on, go read that. Yes. Yes. It's, it, it, God, Solomon, here's a very loose translation summing up in a, in a, in a two-word sentence uh, the message of the book of Song of Solomon. Marriage rocks! That's what he says. That's what he says. And, and so he created it this way. Now, God prohibits all other expressions of sexual behavior. All others. Now, here are just a few from the Bible. He says there's, there's to be no sex outside of marriage. There's to be no sexual worship, which was very common in the pagan worship of the day in the Scriptures. There's to be no sexual commerce, no prostitution or sex trafficking. There's to be no homosexual sex, which fundamentally excludes homosexual marriage. There's to be no sex or, um, or marriage with a close relative. There's to be no pedophilia. There's to be no uh, bestiality. No sex with animals. There's to be no sexual violence. There's to be no mental adultery. There's to be no sexual immodesty. Uh, that's just, there's more prohibitions, but God knew human beings were going to have a lot of trouble with this powerful, dynamic gift that he created called sex. And so he said, it's to be used here in this context of uh, within marriage and nowhere else. Nowhere else. Now, pastor, that's just too narrow. I mean, I've got people have all these feelings and sexual appetites. I mean, I just don't see anything wrong with two consenting adults, you know. And why would God do such a thing? Because he is all-knowing and altogether wise and altogether good, and he has our best interest at heart. You see, sex is like a bottle of Drano. It is. Drano, the drain cleaner, that's great, isn't it? And when used by the manufacturer's instructions, it does the job, doesn't it? Cleans out those drains, that's great. Drano, use it according to the manufacturer's instructions. But when used not in alignment with Ignoring the manufacturer's instructions, it can bring injury and blindness. It can bring even death. Sex is like a can of Drano. God said he made it, and he said, and he has a set of instructions, the manufacturer's 
instructions about with whom and where and when and even how, in the, again, in Song of Solomon, how to go about these things. And when used according to the manufacturer's instructions, it's magnificent, it's wonderful, it's great fun, it's joy, it's a blessing to the, to the whole world. But when it is used in other ways, when it's used in other ways, counter to his instructions, it brings and has brought a sea, an ocean of heartache and grief and pain and disease and abuse and even death uh, that the world has experienced for centuries because they're ignoring the manufacturer's instructions. And sex is to be productive. Look at verse 28 in chapter 1. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God provided for the reproduction of the human race through the marriage of male and female. It's the only way that the human race would survive, male and female marriage. I mean, so how does a husband and wife literally... I mean, he says in, uh, they become one flesh. How do they become one flesh, as he expresses in verse 24 of chapter 2? Well, in many ways, we've already talked about sexually, but literally in the children that are produced from that union. I mean, you literally, the two become one, and there they are running around. It's both of us. <laughs> right? Right? And I mean, that's, that's part of God's plan, and it's a wonderful Wonderful plan is to be productive. And here's a fourth. God created marriage. He created it heterosexual. He created it sexual, but he also creates the union. God does the marrying. In uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Jesus said, Therefore what God has joined together, man must not separate. God brought Eve to Adam. He does the joining of husband and wife. In Genesis 2.22, the Scriptures say, Then the Lord made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. He performs the union. There's this, what we believe from God's Word is when a couple stand publicly and exchange vows with each other and then make vows and declarations to God, it's at that point he does the joining. He, he bonds them together. We, we sing the song, Bind us together, Lord, with cords that cannot be broken. That is what he does. He, he bonds us. It's the picture of welding where the two become... You can't pull it apart cleanly. It, it's, it's the picture of superglue. He superglues their, their souls uh, together. He bonds that God is the one who does the marrying. This is not just a legal, civil exercise. It is legal. It is civil, and that brings the blessing of the culture behind it. But God bonds people together. He does the marrying. He performs the union. Well, God created it. He created it heterosexual. He created it sexual. He's the one that does the marrying, creates the union. We'll pick it up there next week. But let's pray together. Why don't you take a moment? And pray for yourself. Pray that God would give you understanding of His will and His ways on these issues. Pray that somehow God would give us the capacity to no longer be muddle-headed, but to be crystal clear in our understanding, our thinking, 
and our acting upon his truth because we need help. So many competing voices, so many competing arguments, it's hard to hear and think clearly. And pray for your own marriage. Pray that having an understanding of God's will and ways would strengthen your marriage. If you're not married, pray for your future marriage. If you're single and it appears that God's going to leave you single for life, then pray for His grace to reflect His glory, serve Him as single. And pray for, for our culture. Pray that God would move on us and bring spiritual awakening as He has historically in in countries in the past where he would a great move of God that would bring healing to a culture when it seemed impossible. And pray for our culture that we can stop screaming at each other and stop labeling each other. And stop labeling our arguments and positions so that we can just write each other off. It's, it's a terrible, terrible way to be living as a people. Jesus rightly followed turns people into those who love him and love other people. Pray for our, us as a church that he would have his way with us and that we would follow him rightly so that we would live in such a loving fashion that no one could ever say that we hate them because we disagree with them. to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Ask God to help us be salty, to preserve and heal. Just pray for His help. Pray that He'll help us. Lord Jesus, that's what I pray. These issues are too big and complex and emotional. And terrible things have been done and said by people on all sides of these issues. Great harm has been brought. Help us. Lord, help us. Would you help us? Just help us, Lord. Help us. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing, your word says, and evidently that's true. We must have been working apart from you because we've messed up as a people. Help us. Help us, Lord. And I thank you that you made a way 
for moral and spiritual foul-ups, just like me, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to you, to be adopted as your children, to be, to be given the gift of eternal and abundant life, to be transformed in character, in, in values, in behavior, to be changed into people who love you and love other people by your death on the cross and resurrection from the dead and our faith in you, your gospel, knowing that your love is so overwhelming that while we were still sinners, you died for us and that that love is so overwhelming that it motivates and enables us to be and do what you want us to be and do, to, to, to desire and do what pleases you, to will and to work for your good pleasure. And Lord, we come now as your people remembering your sacrifice. You're substituting for us the substitutionary atonement that you provided when you died on the cross in our place. Your body that was broken for us. Your blood that was shed for us. Lord, we come to say thank you as we come to your table. As you continue to pray. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.